Welcome to the first episode of Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast. I'm your host, May Claire Bolton-Smith, and I'm the Senior Leader of Research and Content Strategy with CoreLogic. In my role, I lead thought leadership, covering hot topics like the COVID-19 pandemic and hazard event response. I'm passionate about property data and how the insights we can glean from it can and do fundamentally affect the economy and the world we live in. That's why I'm thrilled to be hosting this new podcast, focusing on everything from housing affordability to the impacts natural hazards have on property, and really focusing in on the property moments that matter most to you. We'll have expert guests that can truly speak to the housing economy and the property market. In our first episode today, I welcome Pete Carroll, Executive of Public Policy and Industry Relations at CoreLogic, to talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the housing market. So let's get started. Pete, thank you so much for joining me today as our very first guest on Core Conversations. Thank you so much for having me, May Claire. I'm really excited to be here. So before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your role here at CoreLogic? Yes, of course. So uh, I, when I graduated from college, I started my career as an intern on Capitol Hill, which was a great experience. Um, spent uh, some of my formative years as a management consultant. And then uh, in the year 2000, founded uh, right around the dot-com boom. Uh, co-founded a fintech company focused in the housing finance industry, um, rode through the financial crisis and exited the company in 2010, after which I started a role at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as it was being implemented from scratch, a new agency built from scratch from the Dodd-Frank Act that was in response to the global financial crisis. Um, I had a wonderful three years there. And after leaving the CFPB, where I was involved in developing the mortgage regulations impacting the housing finance industry. I spent a few years at Wells Fargo and then Quicken Loans, where uh, my role was a mixture of um, credit policy, capital markets, and public policy, and really the intersections between the three. Uh, and now I'm delighted to be at CoreLogic, uh, where I've been using CoreLogic data and analytics my entire career throughout that entire um, uh, span of, of roles I've had. And uh, my role here is very similar, where I try to analyze public policy uh, initiatives underway and how they impact how they impact our clients and how they impact um, our company and the provisioning of our products for our company. That's so great, and really the reason why we wanted you to be our first guest today, Pete, because you've got such a great background and such a broad range of experience as well. So, so with that, let's just dive in. For the past several months, we've all been immersed in the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's disrupted nearly every aspect of our lives. So can you talk a little bit about how COVID-19 has impacted both the housing market and the home buying process? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it has absolutely had a very, very significant impact on both, um, most notably towards the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, many states issued stay-at-home orders, which I'm sure you recall. Um, and that just created a lot of practical logistical concerns with respect to the home buying transit transaction. Um, certain businesses were permitted to stay open during the pandemic, uh, during the early stages of the stay-at-home orders. Um, but there were essential businesses that were allowed to continue. Um, and I, in either event, whether it was a a, a, a critical business or not, there was still the dynamic of 
uh, homeowners or, or just people in their homes not wanting third parties, people they didn't know entering their home, um, strangers. Um, likewise, there were, for example, um, uh, independent appraisers, the people who come to the home to assess the value and condition of the home, who probably didn't feel too great about going into um, the homes of people they were looking to do business in. It was just a very uh, uncertain, fearful time. Um, that This dynamic has leveled off quite a bit since stay-at-home orders have been lifted in, in most states. Um, and people have become more comfortable with some of the measures put in place to try to uh, attenuate the risks of others being in their home, just uh, typical precautions around uh, all the things we do now, wearing masks and um, putting boots on your, you know, the covers over your over your feet and over your shoes when you enter someone's home and trying to minimize the impact on the home, uh, leaving any kind of fingerprints behind um, that could uh, transmit um, uh, the virus. Um, but it's still a relevant issue, of course. Um, and uh, thankfully, there have been a number of changes, uh, policy changes, both at the federal and state level that uh, have permitted digital transactions to occur uh, to um, keep our business rolling and keep mortgage originations uh, flowing and, and real estate closings and transactions flowing during this crisis. And it has been one of the bright spots in our economy. That's so great, because definitely interesting times that we're living in, for sure. So have we ever experienced a housing market like this one before? Never. No, no this, is a, this is a totally unique um, uh, incident for the country. Um, it, it just what, What's so challenging about the situation is that it, it really is a natural disaster. So in some ways, it's not totally dissimilar from, say, a really bad hurricane um, that comes through and creates massive devastation, uh, loss of life, loss of property, um, but and loss of employment, very notably. Uh, but this is a global scale, not a regional scale. So, you know, a big hurricane or tornado um, moves into a region, it's a regional impact. Uh, we've got a strong national economy to buffer that. Uh, but something of this scale that's global in nature that has resulted in whole economies shutting down is unlike anything we've ever seen before. So it's hard to know which policies to really, what policy tools policymakers should use in response. Uh, sometimes it's lessons learned from natural disaster experiences. Sometimes it's lessons learned from past economic events, such as the, the financial crisis, the mortgage crisis, and global financial crisis. Uh, sometimes it's both. It's, it's interesting that you say it's just like a natural disaster, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily equate it like that, but it really is. And I'm kind of a natural disaster planner at heart, and that's been much of my career throughout my life as well. So it's something I really identify with is this being on the scale of a natural disaster, but globally versus just in a localized area. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying there. So if we, if we think a little bit more about something that we've heard a lot about in the past couple of months on the government level is the CARES Act. Can you talk a little bit about how the CARES Act has changed the market? What does it mean for homeowners? I know that it was brought in to help homeowners during the pandemic, but where are we now with it? Oh, absolutely. So just by way of a quick introduction, the CARES Act was a critical um, uh, piece of legislation that was passed uh, shortly after the uh, outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. It um, created a lot of um, both economic stimulus and support for uh, American citizens who were experiencing just terrible, uh, you know, I've 
not to matter, you know, not not the least of which was stay-at-home orders, but loss of job, loss of loss of income, um, a, a number of programs to help stimulate the economy and keep it moving. Um, one of the major provisions of the CARES Act was uh, what was called the for, foreclosure and eviction moratorium and the consumer right to request forbearance. And what this essentially meant was that uh, for a period of time, that time has now expired, uh, but for a period of time, uh, lenders were not permitted to foreclose on properties and landlords were not permitted to evict their tenants, uh, which was very important uh, as we were going through, uh, particularly the early and, and, and early stages of the pandemic and the most severe uh, uh, portions of the pandemic. Um, the other part, the right to request forbearance, really applied to mortgage loans, both single-family and multifamily mortgage loans. But for the average everyday homeowner, um, the single-family residential forbearance was the most pertinent. And that said that for up to a period of a year, um, any, any mortgage borrower who has borrowed from one of the federally-backed mortgage lending programs, which includes Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the government-sponsored enterprises, uh, but also uh, the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, uh, Veterans Administration, VA, and the Rural Housing Service and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Those three loan programs provided by those agencies were also included. And they all provided the, uh, uh, the ability for homeowners to pause their mortgage payments for up to a year. Um, and that is still ongoing today. And we're seeing a mi mix of reactions from homeowners. Some have uh, what uh, one might say preemptively requested uh, forbearance on their mortgage payments. And, and by forbearance, what I mean is a pause. So um, the, the idea behind the, the forbearance request is, is a homeowner could call their mortgage servicer, the person they send their monthly payments to, and say, I'm having a hardship due to this pandemic, and I really need a break um, for a little while while I kind of um, you know, get my economic feet back under me. And I would like to pause my mortgage payments for a period of time. In this case, it could be up to a year, but it could be less. Um, and we've seen a mix of some people requesting forbearance but still making payments, others uh, making payment, requesting forbearance and pausing their payments as, as intended, um, others who have requested forbearance and paused their payments, um, and um, then subsequently exiting and going through what's called a loss mitigation process. And um, loss mitigation is just a way of saying, um, for all these paused payments that have, have happened over a period of time, uh, we need to figure out a way to get the homeowner to catch up on those payments. And all of those programs I mentioned earlier have all come out with special policies designed to make it much easier for a homeowner to um, defer those payments and make them up um, at the conclusion of the mortgage so that it doesn't have to, they can just pick up, ideally just pick back up on the payments they were making before all this started um, and worry about all those arrearages or missed payments, paused payments, um, and push those to the end. Um, and that, that's been a very important feature. That's so important that I think one thing with the CARES Act that a lot of people didn't understand at first is that it was essentially putting your payments on pause and that you still were responsible for paying your mortgage. But what's interesting is that, and I don't think I personally understood this, is that you, you, they're tacking that on to the end of the payment of the mortgage versus having to catch up six or 12 months immediately when you start paying your mortgage again. So that, that's really interesting and really important for people to understand, I think. Absolutely. Um, 
there's also been uh, policies that have been um, put out temporarily by these federally backed lending programs I mentioned, the GSEs, FHA, and, and, and the Rural Housing Service, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the GSEs, um, designed to try to keep the process, the supply chain of mortgages flowing smoothly. And they include uh, in the orig originations and, and uh, process. So the, the process when you apply for a mortgage, it's called going through the origination process. And there's been tremendous activity both at the federal and state level to make sure that any legal barriers or other policy barriers to uh, enacting a digital mortgage or completing a digital mortgage are removed. And that has proven to be quite successful. We've seen um, a, sig a significant uptick in um, homeowners who are applying for mortgages and doing the entire process digitally. And then that includes the process of underwriting a mortgage. So when I apply for my mortgage and the lender underwrites my credit worthiness, uh, being able to do all that activity digitally, including my submission of my own financial information, my income asset and, and credit report or debt information can all be done electronically now. And then maybe more importantly, the closing process, anybody who has ever uh, had a mortgage, has bought a home and, and had a mortgage involved in their in their purchase. Uh, you, you probably recall going to an office of a title company, settlement company, and having a large stack of documents on the desk and having a notary there. You sign the documents in a big ceremony. Uh, a lot of that activity is moving online, which has been uh, very, you know, just critical during this period um, where people have not been able to leave their homes or have been reluctant to leave their homes. Um, and then likewise, I'll just kind of cap this off by talking about the appraisal process, which is, uh, again, if you've purchased a home and and um, and taken out a mortgage in the process, you, could, you probably recall an independent appraiser coming to your home to inspect the exterior and interior of, the, of your home um, so they can document and take pictures of the condition and quality of the home, which they then uh, subsequently evaluate and come up with a value figure. Um, that they send back to the lender and that that a lot of that activity, um, there have been a, a flexibilities put in place that would allow that activity to continue happening without the appraiser ha having to actually physically go to the home and conduct that that uh, inspection inside the home. That's that's so great. And it's so interesting because it's it's amazing how quickly we've adapted to be able to do all of these things virtually so quickly during this time of need. And, and especially, you know, I look back at when we closed on our home and the stacks and stacks of papers that we had to sign. And now just knowing that all of that can be done electronically and digitally. Uh, it's just so amazing how technology has moved us forward so quickly. So that's really great. That's, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. So if we pivot just a little bit now to talk about affordable housing, we know that this is a big concern in this country long before the pandemic ever hit. So how has COVID-19 influenced affordable housing issues? Oh, uh, you know, it, it is such an important issue. It's, it's an important issue to me. I know it's a, a, an issue that's important to most people in the country. It's considered to be a bipartisan issue here in Washington, D.C., it's not an issue that uh, is on either side of the aisle. At both sides of the aisle are, are, are very concerned about it. And I got to say, I mean, COVID-19 has just been a double whammy uh, for this issue. Um, as you noted, affordable housing challenges were with us before COVID-19 arrived. They were reaching critical um, proportions by the time COVID-19 arrived. And now there's real genuine fear that COVID-19 has the potential to just double down and double this, double the pain of, of um, affordable housing issues in the country. 
and just in terms of issues, uh, the problem is we just don't have enough affordable housing. Um, we don't have enough from a homeownership standpoint. We don't have enough from a rental standpoint. It's not an either or, it's both. And that it means we need more what's called uh, multifamily homes or apartments going in that, that would make uh, affordable rentals available. We need more single family homes at lower price points that would um, allow more people to become homeowners um, and, and do so in a mix of different home styles that um, increase uh, what we call soft density, where even, even in traditionally single family residential neighborhoods, the ability to put in a mix of, of types of homes that can range from uh, your traditional single family detached house to um, attached structures like duplexes uh, or townhomes that would um, you know put a number you know, four units into the same plot of land as opposed to one. Um, these are important ways to kind of add more supply into the system and drive down the price over time. You know, it, it's worth mentioning really quickly that one of the lessons we learned in the financial crisis uh, was that undoubtedly in many cities across the U.S., the foreclosure crisis disproportionately hit persons of color and people of low to moderate income. And it was almost a little bit of a, a double whammy where you know, the foreclosure crisis hit people just couldn't sustain their mortgage payments. Uh, they were they had to move through the foreclosure process and exit their homes. And then there were just so many of these foreclosed properties on the market that when they were sold off um, by the investors in these mortgages, which include many of the, the federally backed mortgage programs we were describing earlier, um, they were sold off into the capital markets where, um, you know, where, where our capitalist system does what it does really well, which is it takes private capital and efficiently allocates it. And a lot of these homes were then purchased through foreclosure and then uh, rehabilitated and then turned around, put back out on the market and rented as single family rental companies, oh, as single, single family rental homes. That was a, you know, what I like to say about this is two things can be true. One is that um, it was an important way to kind of clear the foreclosure backlog that was, you know, had the potential to really depress home prices and restore, you know, an equilibrium and pricing, normalized pricing in the market. Um, but it also kind of really created that double whammy on uh, loss of home ownership rates for, uh, in particular, for African-American and, and Latinx homeowners. And, you know, both are true and both things can be true. And, and I think one of the challenges coming out of COVID-19 this time will be to take all those lessons we learned the last time, make sure that we're doing everything we can to help keep homeowners in their homes through this crisis. And then in these invariable, invariably in these moments where people just cannot sustain their mortgage payments uh, due to this pandemic, uh, trying to find creative ways to uh, recycle these distressed properties back into communities so that they so that new homeowners can come in and and uh, and help maintain the the, inte the integrity and fabric of the neighborhood um, and hopefully continue to um, uh, serve um, uh, persons of color with home ownership opportunity. Um, so you know that's one thought I would point to. Um, the other is we just need to be doing more. Uh, we, uh, you know, just the, when you when you really segment and look at who is most impacted by the affordable housing crisis, we're talking about extremely low income and very low income um, uh, um, citizens. So we're talking, and, and those are defined as an extremely low income person has 
um, an area median income. They're below the 30, below 30% of their area median income. So the neighborhood they live in, they're below 30% of the median income earned in that neighborhood. Um, very low income uh, is also uh, heavily impacted. Um, 30 to that's that the very low income is defined as uh, 30% to 50% of the area median income. So these are very low income folks. Um, it tends to be a, a um, affordable rental um, uh, situation in these lower um, lower income um, uh, brackets. But um, just we need to have a, a significant amount of more supply put in there. Um, interestingly, however, there, there are studies uh, that we've been researching and, and developing ourselves that show it's not exclusive to those low, low income, very low income and extremely low income. Even when you get to 100% of area median income or even 120% or greater of area median income, there's still a tremendous dearth of homes, uh, particularly for two and three bedroom homes, which are in high demand. Um, and those tend to be more on the home ownership side of the equation where there, you know, we want to see more home ownership opportunity there. Um, so what are some of the things we can do about it? Um, there has been a number of bipartisan legislative proposals that have come out. Um, and we, you know, it, it actually went for the first time, we're starting to see housing issues become a platform issue in the presidential election. Um, and as I mentioned before, this is a bipartisan issue. So it comes down to what are some of the strategies and tactics to try to solve this problem? Um, I'd point to a few things. One would be um, more investment in proven subsidies. We've got programs uh, such as the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which is just crucial to getting um, multifamily apartments for rent built out. Uh, it's proven that it works and we need to scale it more. Uh, there's uh, how, uh, housing trust funds and grants, grant programs that are provided um, that do a number of things from help uh, subsidize the economics of a development project uh, to providing down payment assistance and the like to um, aspiring homeowners. These are very important subsidies that we need to um, be focusing in on and uh, identifying the ones that have proven to really work and, 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 um, and accelerate them. Uh, you know, another thing we have to do, this is in a number of proposals I've seen, is arming municipalities, cities and counties um, with better data and analytics to target and prioritize the use of these subsidies for affordable housing development purposes. So, I mean, it's one thing to make subsidies available, um, but they have to be delivered at the local level. So state agencies and local agencies allocate all these tax credits and grants. Land developers use them to enhance the economic proposition of the projects they engage in. And that's important. But it's if we don't have the right data and analytics available to these decision makers to identify the best places, the best locations. Remember the old adage, location, location, location. That's true of everything, including where to place affordable housing to get the biggest bang for the buck. Um, we need the right tools to help uh, decision makers figure out where to place affordable housing and then um, how to quickly uh, model and de design and model what to build and how to build something in a way that will achieve many of these policy objectives, such as um, uh, restoring rates of home ownership, for example, for the African-American and Latinx communities and other communities. Um, while still making uh, the development proposition uh, economically positive one for the land developer, who is, of course, looking to make a profit. Um, the last thing I'd point to is uh, uh, innovation, technology innovations, in particular new manufacturing methods, uh, which could really uh, have tremendous promise in just driving down the cost 
of building homes. So, uh, you know, one of the things that always kind of blows my mind is that when you think about how we build homes, it hasn't changed much over the last hundred years. We call it, you know, the, the term is stick built homes, right? Where it's wood, brick, and kind of traditional methods of building homes. And we have things like automated nail guns, which speed up the process and make it more efficient. We haven't fundamentally rethought the process of building homes. And there are new techniques and tools available. We've, we've seen things like manufactured housing or modular housing where um, you know, most of the homes put together off-site and then shipped in and finished. That's one way. Um, we're seeing uh, investments in, in really cutting-edge capabilities like robotics and 3D printing, where you can actually have ro- you know, robots building these homes in automated ways using more durable, energy-efficient materials, um, which just has a potential to drive down costs tremendously, 30% or more. Um, and, and, and so the, these, uh, you know, the combination, it's not one thing, it's the combination of all of these arrows in the quiver, so to speak, that will get the job done. Yeah, that, that's also interesting because it, it's not just one thing and it's such a deep rooted problem that is nationwide. And yeah, you've touched on so many important things. And I think the key is getting that data and analytics to the right people making the decisions to try and make a difference. And it's funny when you said we haven't changed the home buying process or the home, the home construction process in a hundred years, I had never thought about that before, but you're right. Like it's essentially the way we've built homes now is the way we've always built homes. So with a few little exceptions of modular homes and, and manufacture homes and, and things that are coming up now, but yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't quite thought about that perspective before. Yeah, so of interesting things on the horizon, a lot, a lot of great innovations that will hopefully really make an impact here. So let's stay on that topic of innovation, actually, for a minute. So to wrap up, I want to get a little techie. And the Internet of Things and smart homes have been growing in popularity in recent years. And I know in our home, I'm no longer allowed to turn the lights on with a light switch. I try and I get in trouble. But we now used to use an app or ask Alexa to turn the lights on for me. Or if there's anyone at our front door or near our house, we instantly get a text message with a photo that shows the person outside of our home. So can you talk a little bit about the Internet of Things and smart homes in this day and age, all of these conveniences that many of us get so excited about? Are they a good thing? Oh, I'm so I, I, I love this question. I'm so excited to talk about this. I just, it, it's another one of, um, you know, just one of the topics that just really get I just find I find it tremendously interesting um, because on the one hand, there are just so many really fabulous innovations that are out there. Uh, I mean, I, I suspect listeners of this podcast, it probably, we're probably hard pressed to identify a listener um, of this podcast or really anybody um, who doesn't have something uh, in their home that would meet this this criteria of the Internet of Things or smart homes. Uh, you know, if you have a, a thermostat, you can control from an app on your phone. If you've got Alexa, you know, or, or you know, one of the equivalents, Google Assistant or the like, one of these appliances in the home um, that you can ask questions to and get answers. Um, I mean, th- this is all the Internet of Things. It's all audio, video technologies uh, driven through the Internet. Um, Nest cameras has become a very uh, big um, uh, innovation. And, you know, Nest is one example. But you know, the ability to have you know constant around the clock video and audio surveillance of your property uh, outside the home, inside the home. Um, one I like to point to is smart beds. I, I myself just purchased a smart bed, and 
Um, what I find fascinating about it is how it, I have an app that can monitor my sleeping habits. It can tell me wow. when I'm waking up in the night and how long I'm waking up. And it's correct. It's all, it's all quite accurate. There's just sensors all around the bed. These are all wonderful, wonderful uh, innovations. They, they stimulate our economy. They, they, they catalyze new innovations. They, you know, they provide tremendous efficiencies and conveniences to, um, to um, consumers and homeowners in our country. Um, but the other side of this, you know, the, the double edge of the sword that we just have to be looking out for is the obvious, you know, what would be the obvious problem of information privacy. Um, when you start to take the totality of all these innovations and think about the type of information that these, um, you know, that these appliances are gathering, it's, it's, it's quite staggering. I mean, even just going with my smart bed example, I mean, the idea that um, there's a company, and I won't name the company, the company's irrelevant, I mean, all, the, all these like bed companies have innovated in this space now, um, but they know Pete Carroll and they know his sleeping habits down to a T. I mean, that's a little bit creepy when you think about it. Like, creepy when you think of it, yeah. I'm not this, right? I don't, I don't, I don't want to slam it either. I mean, I bought this bed. I'm delighted by this bed. It's like transformed my sleeping life. I sleep way better. And, and, and this app shows me how I'm sleeping better. And it gives me tips to improve my sleeping habits. And I love it. Um, but we, you know, I, one of the challenges of all this tremendous innovation, all this big data, is that it's aggregating and it's aggregating. And it is it's being aggregated increasingly by fewer and fewer entities. And, and that in and of itself isn't a problem. It's more that we just have to be mindful that um, when there are uh, uh, companies that have access to this information, we just we need to be aware as, as, as um, citizens of the country of our country um, and, and just aware of, of just you know how much influence this data can have over our day-to-day -day lives. Um, and make sure that and, and you know we got we have to make sure that the companies who are stewards of this really critical data about all of us um, are using it in the appropriate ways. And I, I, I'm sure by and large that is true. But with any industry, there's always the potential for bad actors or or even inadvertent um, uh, bad acting where there's information security breaches from bad bad actors who are you know targeting good actors who are trying to do their best. Um, this really is just going to be a new frontier, I think, going forward is what is the right um, uh, regulatory framework um, that would uh, not disrupt all of this tremendous innovation and keep it keep it flowing and keep it keep it moving keep it growing it's one of the things that differentiate technology has always been a huge differentiator for the u.s economy um and and that's just that's that has to be the way it is um but at the same time we need to be mindful of um some of the bad things that could happen if the wrong data falls into the hands of the wrong people and like everything else in my view it's a balance and i'm sure it's a balance we will strike yeah, I'm sure we will. But it is information security is key. And that's something that's such a huge problem with everything we do these days, because everything is so electronic. So, well, Pete, this has been so great. Thank you for joining me as our first guest on Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast. Oh, it is, it's my pleasure. I had an absolutely wonderful time speaking with you. It's such an interesting um, set of conversation topics. And I'm delighted to be here and hope we can come back again. I would love to have you again. And, and we will have more interesting conversation topics as we continue with this podcast. So for more information and insights on the property market and housing economy, please visit corelogic.com slash insights. 
I hope you've enjoyed our first episode and please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified when a new episode is released. Thanks for joining us. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.